Bernie Sanders, by, by everything, by every metric, is winning. He is the front runner. And I could tell you, and I'm going to show you another poll, that, again, are oversampling older people, undersampling young people to say, oh, look, Bernie, uh, Joe Biden is up double digits. No, 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 no. Unless they, unless they actually tell you and tell us how many older people are they sampling versus how many younger people, I don't believe what they're saying because I think they're oversampling older people. No offense to my older viewers. There's plenty of people out there that are older and love them some Bernie and feel in the burn. However, by the numbers, Bernie Sanders is a huge advantage among millennials and young people. So if they're not going to give us the information on how many young people are you polling? If you're polling over 1,000 people, are you polling 400, 500 young people? Or are you polling 40 and 40 or 50 young people? Kind of important to know for the context whether we could take these polls seriously. And so far, CNN has not responded to my request for comment on their polling methodology. Neither has Quinnipiac, neither has Emerson, and I just reached out to Morning Consult today. Still waiting. Not holding my breath. But when you look at the fundraising numbers, which we went over the other day, when you look at the donations, when you look at the volunteers, over a million volunteers now, now let's look at Bernie Sanders, along with Ro Khanna, along with Senator Chris Murphy, give credit to extremist Republican Senator Mike Lee, just successfully got the first ever use of the War Powers Act in America to not only pass the Senate, but also pass the House of Representatives. This was spearheaded by Bernie Sanders and Rokana's leadership. Congress has given final approval on a resolution to end American military assistance for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen in an unprecedented attempt to curtail the president's power to go to a war and sweeping rebuke to Donald Trump's foreign policy. The House voted 247 to 175 to send the resolution to the president's desk, where it is likely to be met with a veto. 16 Republicans broke ranks and joined Democrats in the effort. The Senate passed the resolution last month, with seven Republicans voting in favor of it. The resolution's passage sets up another confrontation between Congress and Trump, who has already threatened to veto it. The White House has said the resolution raises serious constitutional concerns. Of course, that's BS. The vote marks the first time Congress has invoked the 1973 War Powers Act to curb the executive's power to take the country into a conflict without congressional approval. It is aimed at ending U.S. involvement in the long-running Yemen conflict. Under intense public and congressional pre pressure, the Pentagon stopped providing aerial refueling in November for Saudi warplanes on Yemen's sorties. Sorties. Benjamin Friedman, policy director for the Defense Priorities Think Tank, said that most of the remaining U.S. involvement in the conflict was in the providing intelligence support for the coalition. Quote, it'll be a mix of intelligence, including signal intercepts, overheard surveillance from satellites and aircraft, including drones, Friedman said. Exactly just how dependent the Saudis and UAE are, are on the U.S. is hard to say. The war in Yemen, which has just entered its fifth year, is estimated to have killed more than 60,000 people and left millions on the brink of starvation, creating what the UN called the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Let's hear Bernie Sanders uh, on this. Sorry, this is from his YouTube channel. Uh, the video and, and audio is not the greatest, but this is the best I could find you. Here we go. Who understood the importance of what we're doing. Just wanna make a few points. Uh, what we're seeing now in Yemen 
is uh, an unparalleled humanitarian disaster. Uh, some 85,000 children have already starved to death as a result of the Saudi-led war. Uh, and if we do not act decisively in helping them to rebuild their economy, uh, provide them with humanitarian aid, provide food, not bombs, the situation could become even worse, as, as Rose said. Our second point of importance is the vote in the Senate and in the House makes it clear that the United States will not continue to follow uh, the despotic, anti-democratic leadership coming out of Saudi Arabia. They have their aggressive foreign policy, their aggressive military policy. I think it's a bad idea, but at the very least, the United States should not be led into a war by a despotic, undemocratic, murderous regime. Third point, which applies only not only to Yemen, but to the future. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution is pretty clear. It is the United States Congress, not the President, who has responsibilities in terms of lawmaking. But tragically, for many years, on the Democratic presidents, on the Republican presidents, the Congress has abdicated its responsibility. Today, the Congress says we are taking that responsibility back, not just for Yemen, but in the future as well. And the fourth point that I want to make is President Trump has said, appropriately enough, that he wants the United States to get out of endless wars. Well, this war in Yemen has gone on long enough. And if the president wants to keep faith with what he has talked about, I hope very much that he will sign this historic uh, legislation and work with us uh, to make sure that the United States does not continue to be involved in endless and destructive wars. Sorry if that uh, video quality was not the best. Uh, I got it from his page. So... A few things. Number one, let's forget politics for a second. Let's forget Bernie Sanders for a second. Putting aside uh, politics and 2020 and Bernie and all that. It says something about our uh, country and our media that there's such a cognitive dissonance. We spend, the media spends all their time, you know, creating this propaganda that someone like Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard is, is an Assad toady and an Assad apologist and, and, you know, pox on her house. By the way, uh, as of yesterday or two days ago, I think she was like 5,000 donors away uh, from making the debate stage. I think she was at 57,000. Uh, if I was, I, I might be a, a thousand wrong. It could have been 57,000 or 58,000. I don't remember. But a lot closer to 65,000, which she needs 65,000 donations to get to, uh, 65,000 donors to get to the debate. So she is a toady. Uh, and she's an apologist, and she should be ostracized and, and, and banished fr from media and cocktail parties. And, these, you know, she should not be taken as a serious candidate. Yet, for, for many years, and by the way, I do not even think this would have passed, this Yemen war uh, resolution would have passed if not for the tragic execution, barbarism, beheading, of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Because then suddenly Congress and the media elite and the punditariat class, I, I now call it the punditariat, that's when they suddenly 
were like, oh, this guy, Mohammed bin Salman, he's a, he's, he's a brutal dictator, this one. And look what they're doing. And now we could talk about Yemen. I'm sorry that uh, Khashoggi was executed. It's terrible. I mean, anybody, will, anybody any, any you know, human, uh, non-crazy person would say it's terrible. But why did it take that to start talking about genocide in Yemen and the United States' role? Because that's really what it took. So I just want to make the point that we, Saudi Arabia, would not have been able to butcher as many children and women and innocents in Yemen without the United States, starting with you, President Barack Obama. It's not just Trump. This started under Barack Obama. Okay? And I didn't hear Nancy Pelosi. I didn't hear Chuck Schumer telling him no on this. Obviously, we didn't hear the Republican Party saying anything. So this is a national disgrace. We have blood on our hands, just like we have blood on our hands in Libya. I mean, Iraq, Afghanistan, we should have been out. Somalia, Pakistan, I could go on. So I am glad this has passed the House and and the Senate. And you know what? If Trump vetoes it, good. Because then, then we have a debate. Because the media will only cover pertinent issues if it involves Donald Trump, because that's their cash cow. So let him veto it. And then an actual leader, Bernie Sanders, can be covered the way he should be covered, which is as the front runner the presidential candidate uh, campaign on the Democratic side. And as a leader, they say, what has Bernie done? Oh, he's only just spearheaded and led the effort to, for the first time in American history, have the War Powers Act implemented. But it now looks, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, it now looks like the corporate media is starting to wake up a little bit. Only took them, only took them you know, two years. Here's Jake Tapper yesterday. I think that it's fair to say Senator Bernie Sanders, when it comes to polls, among the declared candidates, declared, when it comes to polls, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to the number of contributors, when it comes to the fact that his dollar amounts, the average contribution is so small, mm-hmm. without question, I think Bernie Sanders is a front runner, don't you think, of declared the, candidates? That's the key caveat that you're making, right? Yes, among declared candidates, you've got to say that's true for Bernie, but he benefits from a very broad field. Once you get Biden in that, of course, all of a sudden that top tier, you know, Biden best Bernie Sanders in most polls. Um, look, I, I think Bernie's got a very intense, devoted cadre. He shaped the direction of the party. And, and in a very wide primary, could his 20, 25 percent of hardcore supporters be enough? Maybe. But the second Biden gets in the race, that statement's no longer operative. And I do think we all know what this is about. These are brushback pitches against Biden. Can he handle a leftward drifting party? He, not his first rodeo. Assuming he can, that statement's no longer operative. Uh, we should point out that um, there's a lot of talk online right now, especially among Sanders supporters, about a column by Washington Post's, uh, the Washington Post's Dana Milbank, uh, who writes uh, that Bernie is the Trump of the, of the Democratic Party. Fundraising and polls show that many Democrats think that the best answer to an angry old white guy with crazy hair, New York accent, and flair for demagoguery is, well, another angry old white guy with crazy hair, New York accent, and flair for demagoguery. It's not difficult to picture a scenario in which Bernie captures a Democratic presidential nomination with the same formula that worked for Trump with Republicans in 2016. Forgetting yeah. for, for, for a second the, the hair and the New York accent and all that stuff, it is actually easy to look at the race and say, you know what, lots of candidates... A, very, a guy with a very strong following and 30% of the voters so, like Trump did in 2016, 
that Bernie could do that in 2020. Yes. And, and listen, win the nomination. Look, people underestimated Bernie Sanders the entire time that he was running against Hillary Clinton last time. The guy got 47% of the vote mm -hmm. against the entire Clinton-Obama machine in a year that you know, Hillary Clinton should have had a, 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 a wrong. And he never stopped running for president. He just changed it to Medicare for all. I've been with Bernie, you know, in, in, in states and in places. He's getting two, three, four, five thousand people to come out to hear him give the same speech they've heard a million times, uh, you know, nine months ago, 12 months ago, 16 months ago. He never stopped running for president. He has the biggest social media operation. He's got a bigger social media operation than some people who do it professionally. You've got corporate, you know, we call it now sure. this and that kind of stuff. So I'm just saying, People continue to underestimate the insurgency in our own party. That's like the only thing they have in common. Can I just say? Oh, like, fair so there you have uh, Jake's sleepy eyes tapper because I've never seen him actually challenge anyone powerful. But that's OK. I kid. I just play with you, Jake Tapper. This is very interesting to me. Uh, you, you heard Jake Tapper make the point that Bernie's the front runner of declared candidates. I don't actually think that's correct. I think he's the front runner, period. I'm going to show you another poll that conspicuously missing is explaining just how many young people are you polling? Because all of these polls, all of these polls somehow, all of these polls somehow are finding that Joe Biden is up by 10 points. Well, how many young people are you polling? Because if you're oversampling, if you are oversampling older people, yeah, he'll be up. In some cases, seven points. In some cases, 10 points. He will be up by that many. But it, that's never discussed. These polls create a narrative, and then CNN says, well, Joe Biden is the front runner. No, Let, I'll show you this poll. I'm not just saying this because I personally like Bernie. I'm saying this is somebody who wants all the information, who wants the numbers. I, I don't think that's a lot to ask. Here's Morning Consult. Morning Consult poll. And they have... They say on a daily basis, Morning Consult interviews over 5,000 registered voters across the U.S., blah, 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 blah. So, the most recent poll, their methodology, right? They say on the Democratic primary, our, our Democratic primary results are reported using 12,940 interviews with registered voters who indicate they may vote in the Democratic primary or caucus. For those who say they don't know or no opinion, they are asked to pick a candidate they are leaning towards, which are factored into the results. The margin of error for potential de Democratic primary voters is plus one, minus one. Okay. So, Joe Biden. Change from last week. He's at 33%, down minus two. Bernie Sanders, 25%. Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, 8%. Elizabeth Warren, 7%. All right, so you got Joe Biden up by eight points. How do you get to that? Joe Biden in the early primary states. Joe Biden is up by nine points. How do you get to that? I don't know. They don't tell you. Very favor, you know, favorability. Bernie Sanders, 33%. Joe Biden, 41%. Somewhat favorable. Bernie, 43%. Biden, 36%. Okay. But how are they getting to these numbers? Where are the age breakdowns? If you find it and I'm missing it, let me know. Net favorability. Joe Biden, 66. Bernie, 62. Biden down three. Bernie up five. 
then they get into the Republican Party. Zero information on the ages of people they're polling. Now, this might sound like a boring topic to you. It's not, because this is one of the ways that narratives get framed. This is one of the ways that they subtly rig the primary, because it's the same thing that CNN did, including in their reporting in 2016, the superdelegates lumping those in with the pledge delegates. Of course, that was intellectually dishonest. Superdelegates don't actually vote until the nomination, so they should, until the convention, so they should have been only showing pledge delegates. What we, what they were doing by that is basically trying to seep into the public, uh, you know, zeitgeist. Oh, Bernie, it's already, it's already gone. He's too far gone. Hillary's clobbering him. Why even go vote? That's what they were doing. Well, these polls, and I'm not saying that the pollsters, pollsters are knowingly being deceptive. I think they are subtly, because they're old school and they probably don't think it's that important to get an equal number of young people than older people. But in this context, it is because you have a candidate that is unique in Bernie Sanders. Yes, there are definitely a big, big, big part of his uh, supporter base that are older, even 50 plus. But this candidate crushes every other candidate age 18 to 29, as well as uh, if you put it bigger picture, he, he, he he's wins like 35 to 49. These are millennial voters and then whatever's above millennial, Gen Z, Gen X, I think. So if you're putting out poll after poll after poll that shows Biden up 10, Biden up seven, some have Biden up more than 10. Don't you think you should offer the details of how many people age 18 to 29 or 30, uh, 18 to 29 and above 30? So some polls have it 18 to 29. Some polls have it 18 to 34. So let's just say, how many people are you polling 18 to 34? How many people are you polling 35 to 49? I think the reason they don't disclose that, I think the reason Quinnipiac, CNN, Emerson, and Morning Consult has not gotten back to me is because they are under polling young people to get to spin a narrative that Joe Biden is winning. Well, I'll say this. If they poll an equal amount of young people, it could be close. Joe Biden could be up three, four points. He could be up margin of error. I mean, he was the vice president to Obama. Don't get me started on Obama, but nationally, he's still fairly popular. But I mean, three to four points, I wouldn't call that he's the front runner. If, if it is, he's up three to four points. Uh, what exactly is he doing right now? I mean, why such a prolonged wait? I was talking to Jen, keep it real, keep it real. I think Joe Biden and his people, they might be expecting some more women to come out. They might be expecting worse stories than just, you know, getting into people's personal space. I have no evidence of that, to be clear. I, I'm not reporting anything. It's just my hypothesis. But they could be waiting this out so because they would rather deal with it before he officially runs than after he launches. So don't think that as I report right now and as I, as I speak and you comment, don't think they're not swatting away media outlets that are reaching out to them because there's a lot of media outlets digging in and speaking with women that might have reached out to them. I know Jen uh, right here at Status Coup. 
has reached out uh, to one or two women, and we're trying to verify uh, any claims because obviously we want to be responsible. So, bottom line, I think Bernie's the front run, front runner. I think Bernie's on fire, frankly, and I think the fact that he is the front runner and he is on fire. Expect a lot more negative pieces in the Washington Post and the New York Times, and expect CNN, MSNBC to heat up, to rise up the temperature. They're not going to give the nomination to him. They are going to try and take it away. And I will be here every step of that way to expose it. So we were just in Seattle, if you remember, with your funding to do it. That's the only reason we were able to go to Seattle and cover uh, Amazon's disastrous effects on the city of Seattle. Um, Rent has gone up as high as 70% in the last five years. Some estimates have it even higher. Uh, Seattle has become a wasteland for homelessness because there is no affordable housing anymore because there's no rent control. And the city basically bent over for the last basically two decades for Jeff Bezos and Amazon. They gave them whatever they want. And essentially, Jeff Bezos, what he wanted was a gentrified neighborhood for Amazon workers and other wealthy people. And as I've said when I was in Seattle, and I'll say it again now, I don't hold anything against the workers. I don't have, you know, if you're a coder or tech person or software engineer, it's not your fault. It's Jeff Bezos' fault, and it's the Seattle city government and the state government and the federal government for basically choosing to, you know, fluff Jeff Bezos and Amazon's pillow and forget the working people in cities like Seattle. And it's not just Seattle. you got Portland, San Francisco, L.A., uh, many, many other cities that have been really, really screwed by Silicon Valley and people like Jeff Bezos. So for all that, for all of what Seattle did, for all, you know, Seattle, the city council, they were going to do a mild, call it a head tax, which was going to tax Amazon workers, $275 a worker to pay towards affordable housing and investing to get homeless people off the streets. Jeff Bezos, whose company, Amazon, and him created the conditions for a homeless homelessness crisis. And, you know, I have people tweeting me, it's not just Jeff Bezos. No, it is. Yes, there are other factors, but the homelessness did not just explode because, like, you know, a lemonade stand came into Seattle. It's Amazon. It also, Microsoft played a part in that. So what is, what is Jeff Bezos? Thank you to the city of Seattle who sold out working people, who sold out lower income people. He's going to take his ball and go somewhere else. Shocking. Exclusive. Amazon moving thousands of employees out of Seattle, relocating key division to nearby city. Amazon plans to relocate its entire Seattle-based worldwide operations team to Bellevue, Washington by 2023, adding thousands of employees to its new campus just across Lake Washington, according to an internal email obtained by GeekWire. Moving a large and critical team away from Seattle's headquarters is a significant relocation of employees on its own, but it's also a weighty symbolic gesture, the clearest sign Yet, that the tech giant is cooling on its hometown while doubling down on a neighboring city. Quote, I'm excited to share the news that we're planning to migrate worldwide operations to Bellevue starting this year, said Dave Clark, the senior vice president in charge of the team, in an email to his employees. Sources familiar with the plans said several thousand employees will be moving to Bellevue in the years ahead. Amazon confirmed the authenticity of the email. 
Worldwide Operations is one of the most critical teams at Amazon, the arm responsible for getting packages to customers' doors. It oversees more than 175 operating fulfillment centers around the world and the 250,000 employees who work there. The team also manages Amazon's thousands of delivery truck retailers and its fleet of 40 airplanes. New logistic New logistics initiatives like Amazon Delivery Service Partners Program also fall under the worldwide operations purview. Amazon will start moving employees to Bellevue this month and will finish the migration by 2023. The company currently has 700 employees in Bellevue and more than 45,000 at its Seattle headquarters. It would take some time for Amazon's Bellevue team to grow to a size that rivals Seattle, but moving the worldwide operations team is a big step in that direction. The migration adds weight to the theory that Amazon is shifting its focus to Bellevue and other cities across the country amid ongoing tensions between the tech giant and its longtime hometown. Why would Amazon move one of its most essential teams out of the company's Seattle headquarters? Amazon hasn't yet commented publicly, but there are a few possible reasons. The move allows Amazon to continue tapping the Seattle region's deep talent pool, but lets the company escape some of the friction it's experiencing in its hometown. Oh, such friction, asking you to pay like a penny per worker. $275 a worker to Amazon is not even a penny. It's less than a penny. But you can't ask Jeff Bezos and other billionaire fuckheads couldn't help myself, demonetized, leave a super chat if you can. <laughs> Can't allow fuckheads like Jeff Bezos to lift a finger to help starving homeless people. Bellevue was among our, Bellevue was Amazon's original birthplace, but CEO Jeff Bezos moved the company's headquarters to Seattle's urban core early on. He said the global He said the goal was to provide the type of urban environment that young, dynamic tech workers thrive in. But fast forward to 2019 and the tech industry's rapid growth has fomented frustration among longtime Seattleites who have whiplash from how quickly the city is changing. Yeah, some of them have whiplash sleeping in tents because they're homeless. That animosity came to a head last year when Seattle officials passed a tax on big businesses like Amazon to fund affordable housing, a pressing issue in the region. The business community balked at the tax, leading the city to repeal it less than a month later. The fight over the so-called head tax became emblematic of Amazon's strained relationship with Seattle. It's unbelievable to me. Let me first show you what Seattle City Council member Shama Sawan said. Capitulating to corporate bullies and billionaires never works. Despite that shameful repeal of the Amazon tax by Seattle's Democrats, she is a socialist, Amazon has announced it's moving jobs anyway. Remember Boeing? We need to build a working class fight back in all cities. You tell them, Shama. Love Shama Sawant. So, let me get this straight. Seattle, which is run by Democrats, is thought to be progressive, essentially so that Jeff Bezos and Amazon will come in, will stay in, will be happy. No taxes on Amazon. Amazon barely pays federal tax. It barely pays city taxes. We're going to deregulate. There's really little regulation. By the way, there's infrastructure that needs to be built for Amazon to be there. 
I mean, I was talk. I did an interview there. You know, uh, sewage that needs to be built, other uh, electrical stuff around the city, just for Amazon's headquarters. All of this, not to mention, not to mention the fact that rent has gone up seventy percent over the last five years, resulting. I mean, homelessness is bad in New York City. Homelessness is bad in Portland. Homelessness is bad in San Francisco. Homelessness is bad in L.A. Homelessness is bad in Chicago. And on and on we go. But Seattle, the thing with Seattle, the homelessness is immersed even in the nice neighborhoods. There is no separation. I I, I covered a homeless uh, encampment there. It's literally in the middle of the street right next to beautiful new apartments. So Seattle basically bent over for Jeff Bezos. And then when those politicians got like one, one inch, one inch of courage to say, no, you know what? We, you are making it so that actual people from Seattle cannot live here. You are making it so working people cannot afford a place to live. You are making it so that over 4,000 children are homeless in Seattle. So we are going to make you pay $275 per employee. And what does Amazon do? It screams and hollers like a kid when you took away their snack. And now they're moving those jobs that Seattle's Democrat city council and that Democrat mayor and the Democrat governor of Seattle, Jay Inslee, who's running for president. They're taking those jobs away that those people prostituted themselves for. And you know what I'm talking about if you live in Seattle. I want to play a clip from my interview with Shama, Shama, Shama Sawant, sorry, mispronounce it sometimes, that I think illustrates the point. Here's Shama during our interview. The question really is, uh, goes to the heart of uh, the way the capitalist system works, which is that you can have a booming economy, and yet that booming economy is going to leave behind the vast majority of people to some measure or another, some worse than the others. And so... Uh, what you see is a construction boom in Seattle, also a jobs boom in some ways, but uh, it mainly uh, is benefiting a small section of uh, society. And it's not only the billionaires that are benefiting, obviously they're taking home the lion's share of the wealth, but you do see tech jobs. And yes, absolutely, we want uh, good quality jobs for ordinary people. We want people to excel in maths and sciences and uh, really explore their talents. The problem, and this is the reason I'm a socialist, is that the problem with capitalism is that um, jobs only as a means, only so far as they are a means for expanding, ever expanding the profits for a small section at the top. And who are we talking about? Our enemies are not the workers in the tech sector. Our enemies are Jeff Bezos. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, billionaires like that. In fact, those three billionaires own more wealth than the entire bottom half of the U.S. population. That's the kind of system we're talking about. And so that system is geared to rewarding people who already have immense amounts of wealth. And so uh, Jeff Bezos gets richer every year while we, the rest of us get poorer every year. So, you know, what you said about developers having the keys to the kingdom, really, I think that's a metaphor for capitalism itself. Capitalism is a productive system, but the only people who have keys to the kingdom are the very, the sliver at the top and the rest of us have to struggle. And so as a socialist, I would like to, I would like us to, uh, you know, imagine a different kind of society 
where the incredible wealth and resources and everything in our society is, uh, is, um, is harnessed to make sure that everybody has a decent standard of living. And short of socialism, let me talk about something that we can do in the here and now. You talked about rent control. Absolutely, Seattle needs rent control without loopholes, corporate loopholes. What Seattle also needs is a massive expansion of social housing, which is publicly funded affordable housing that will remain affordable to everybody at all times. But that has to be funded by taxing big businesses like Amazon and Macy's and so on. But what would that actually be? That would be a massive jobs program. Keeping it real. Love Shama Sawant. Not trying to start any friction for her, but we need her in Congress. We need her in D.C. Because I think she's fabulous. I really do. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a fanboy for Shama Sawant. So let, let's be very clear here. Just like the federal government gave fraudulent criminal bankers a get-out-of-jail-free card, and they're now getting record bonuses after taking down the global financial economy, with no strings attached, by the way, Seattle and Washington State and the federal government just have given Amazon whatever the hell they want. No strings attached. And the slightest, the slightest whatever you want to call it, economic string, a tax that Jeff Bezos, it, 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 it would not affect him or Amazon at all in the grand scheme. Amazon is a $1 trillion company. Taxing Amazon and other businesses in Seattle that have led to an epidemic of homelessness and an affordable housing crisis. And it's not just a homelessness, it's all the people living paycheck to paycheck that are one bad month in Seattle and other cities like it away from being homeless. So it's that economic insecurity that is also the crisis there. While Jeff Bezos is buying another yacht, he's making $266 million a day. And that was, that was six months ago. I don't know. It might be more now. And it's all a ruse. You ask him to pay his taxes, you ask them to pay towards, to be, you know, whatever they call it, corporate, you know, responsible corporate citizens. And what do they do? They're taking their ball, they're taking those jobs that you prostituted yourself for. The Democrats in Seattle, the Democratic governor, they're taking their ball and they're going somewhere else. Great for Bellevue, you're going to get the jobs, but they'll do it to you when you eventually, the jig is up. And when it eventually creates a homeless epidemic in your neck of the woods. So that's why the progressives and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the, and the progressives that fought this in New York City were right because Amazon would have done to New York City what it's now doing to Seattle. And that's why status quo is so important. This is not a cheesy segue to get you to sign up as a member, but the corporate media treats Jeff Bezos like he's Jesus of Nazareth, like he is such a brave, special man. Oh, look at his philanthropy. Great. He gives to philanthropy after taking a machete to the working class. I don't give a damn about his philanthropy. Great. You know what? Bill Gates gives to philanthropy. He still owns a toxic waste management company that is responsible for people that I covered in St. Louis having to go outside, little children, and play with masks on because of his, his waste management uh, landfill that has undergr an underground methane fire uh, near it. 
His underground, his landfill is basically a nuclear waste site next to an underground methane fire. And he, Bill Gates' company, has refused to move that waste because it would cost them money. Warren Buffett, biggest investor in the Dakota Access Pipeline, never gets talked about in the corporate media. So Jeff Bezos gets away with what he's doing because there's no media that holds him accountable. We will. That, that's not going to be my first rodeo to Seattle. And it's not going to be, you know, we got to go to San, Fran- San Francisco and cover the homelessness issue. I was in Portland for the Young Turks years ago covering the homelessness issue. But I would love to do a tour of some of these cities that are being decimated by Silicon Valley, by big business, and by, let me be clear, spineless and greedy and corrupt, not Republicans, Democrats. Yes, we, we could rant about how terrible Donald Trump is. I'm about to tell you how terrible he is in a different story. But Trump isn't... <laughs> responsible for all of this. Democrats are helping usher in. And, you know, when you say a tale of two cities, it's a it's a tale of two countries now. You know, the media is continuing, uh, even though the bar bar summary came out quoting Mueller that there was no collusion. I've said we want the report. We I, I would like to see the report, but they're still covering it 24 seven. Meanwhile, a lot of the a lot of the progressives like myself, Aaron Maté, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, I don't know if Michael Tracy would classify himself as a progressive. Michael Tracy, uh, who am I forgetting? Lee Camp, Jamal Thomas, many others. Matt Taibbi have all along been saying, while you focus on the new Cold War, Trump is doing terrible, toxic shit right in the open, and it's getting no coverage, like approving blowing off a federal judge is ruling. A federal judge ruled against the Keystone Pipeline. He denied the permit that Trump had granted. And now Trump is just saying to hell with the federal judge. Laws don't apply. Trump's unprecedented plan to start restart the Keystone XL Pipeline may be illegal. President Donald Trump ratcheted up the drama over the Keystone XL Pipeline Friday when he issued a presidential memorandum to push the oil pipeline through despite a recent court ruling against it. And opponents plan on taking him back to court over it. After all, his action could set a new precedent for presidential power over such infrastructure if he gets away with it. The Keystone XL pipeline has lost and gained approval over and over again under separate administrations and lawsuits. Most recently, the proposed 1,179-mile-long pipeline from Alberta, Canada to Nebraska was put on pause in November after a federal district court judge concluded the project's environmental impact analysis failed to properly assess its impact on the climate, the impacts of potential oil spills, and more. All issues that need attention under the National Environmental Policy Act, the judge ordered the State Department to redo that analysis. Now, Trump is telling Judge Brian Morris to go screw himself. This new presidential permit is supposed to replace one the president issued just days after taking office in 2017. And the president is asserting that NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, doesn't have power over this permit the way it did over the last one. It is, it's clear the White House believes it could go around that earlier executive order. This is where things grow complicated. You see, when Trump issued a federal permit for the pipeline in 2017, he delegated authority over that process to the State Department. 
That permit sought federal regulatory approval and input from the public and federal agencies. This time around, however, the president is not involving anyone else. The new permit is issued simply, quote, by the authority vested in Trump as president of the United States. This move is unprecedented, said Doug Hayes, a senior attorney with the Sierra Club, who's helping litigate the case. It's pretty clear that this new permit was an attempt to circumvent the court's rulings and the environmental law altogether. This is the first time, at least since 1968, that a president has tried to just avoid all that altogether. But Russia. But Russia. But Russia. To hammer this home, uh, here's my interview with a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, Joy Braun, who is going to be impacted this along with the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. You need to have the Department of State uh, signing off on anything that crosses a United States border, whether that's Canada or, or uh, Mexico. So this particular, uh, we, we absolutely believe that this particular um, um, that, that this that this is illegal and um, that that we will stop it again. And it seems to me, uh, obviously, with such delays for Keystone TransCanada, Trump might be doing this because, frankly, I, I would think investors are going to start pulling out if this thing doesn't start getting built. Uh, do you think that played a part? I think so. I think that that's definitely a case. Um, TransCanada, or they're, they're changing their name to TC Energy, um, has its uh, annual meeting coming up this next month um, up in Canada, and they're going to have to answer to their shareholders. And um, if you are a shareholder or you know a shareholder uh, of, of TransCanada or TC Energy, let them know this, this is not going to get built. We have stopped this pipeline three times before, and we will stop it again. And you mentioned uh, this is not Standing Rock. Obviously, the attention and all the, <laughs> all the activism and organizing and all that, unfortunately, most of that happened when the pipeline was already halfway built. Whereas now, there's been pre-construction, but not, you know, really active construction. Uh, so what do people need to know? Because obviously, this is the new frontier. We've already seen reports that, you know, the Morton County Sheriff from Standing, Standing Rock days has been going around the country giving, you know, guidance to police departments on how to deal with these eco-terrorists, they like to call them. Uh, and I know that both in Nebraska and other paths, that the Keystone Pipeline can go through, might, uh, is going through, uh, police departments have definitely built up their stock of weaponry. Yeah, they have. Uh, we, we have reports from, like, here in South Dakota, from the um, Highway Patrol and from different counties of, of the different types of equipment that they, that they have brought in. Uh, we have reports at... Um, that Kyle Kirchmeyer told um, some of the sheriff's departments to arm their children. Jeez. I mean, can you can you imagine telling 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 that somebody to arm their kids? We never had guns. If we had guns in Ocheti, uh, that would have been all over the freaking news, and they would have come in with guns a blazing on us. So we we never had guns. We were always unarmed. That full interview is up on our YouTube status quo. Uh, youtube.com slash status coup thanks to joy and why i'm showing you this is i i, I want to see the Mueller report I, I i don't think there's anything wrong with saying that 
But all these people that think Trump is awful, he's doing things day to day that actually are endangering our planet and, you know, our people and your wallet. (laughs) Nothing. No media coverage. Why isn't Joy and other Native Americans at Cheyenne River, at Pine Ridge, uh, uh, from Nebraska, and other tribes where this pipeline is going through? This pipeline is going to cover, I believe, uh, go through 700 parts, 700 streams uh, of water, including the Missouri River, where the Dakota Access Pipeline has gone under. To our knowledge, the Dakota Access Pipeline has leaked at least five times. But of course, could have leaked more times that than that that have not been reported, including in the Missouri River. So Trump basically tossing out a federal judge's ruling is, I think, illegal. And hopefully, I mean, she did say they're going to you know, file another lawsuit. But this is what should be getting attention, but isn't because it's not sexy. It's not the new Cold War. There's no it's not sensational. It just affects the most vulnerable people in our society. That doesn't sell on CNN or MSNBC, does it?